0: Reflections on the Gospel of John, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 12. By definition, a myth goes without saying, and as soon as one begins to ask it to speak, it begins to deconstruct. So they're fumbling around trying to figure out why they're doing these things. Well... A cook said, I did not, when they asked me, the old chief said, how would you like our, this was, after the ritual, after the ritual they said to the cook, how would you like our ritual? The, chi- the chief said, how would you like our ritual? Thinking it was a pretty neat ritual and the cook would like it. And cook said, I did not hide my detestation. <laughs> and in order to convey his detesa- detestation, he used Omi, the uh, Tahitian interpreter. And this is what I think is interesting. Here's what Cook writes in his journal. In conveying our sentiments to the chief on the subject of the late sacrifice, Omi uh, was made our interpreter and he entered into our arguments with such spirit that the chief seemed to be in great wrath, especially when he was told that that if he had put a man to death in England as he had done here, his rank would not have prevented him from being hanged for it. Upon this he exclaimed, Mino, Mino, meaning vile, vile, and he would not hear another word. End quote. Now, the spirit with which this young interpreter, he's all he's supposed to do is interpret the words, translate them from English into Tahitian. But something happens in the translation. The words are the words which are accusing the accuser. It's deconstructing the accusatory consensus. And lo and behold, the interpreter not only interprets the words, he is seized by the spirit that is deconstructing accusation, the sacrificial accusation. What is that spirit? See, What is that spirit that can seize hold of somebody? And he he precipitates, in response to that, the wrath of the chief which is the prince of this world trying to regain his composure. I'm not saying the chief is the prince of this world, you understand, but I'm saying that it, the, the myth that justifies the sacrifice is the, is, uh, is the structure of this world, and the chief is trying to regain it in his wrath. Notice, again, uh, back to the question of the history of the paraclete, Notice the the naivete of Cook saying, if you had done that in England, you would have been hanged, thinking, to some extent correctly, that England's version of the sacrificial ritual was so far superior to the Tahitian version that there was no comparison of them, when in fact it's just an extension of it one has to say is probably a, a the extension is not without a certain moral progress one can one can see a certain moral progress when one goes from just hitting some poor guy in the head to uh, to to hanging the guy who hit the guy in the head but it's progress made inside the sacrificial system it's not it's not it's not one hasn't left the sacrificial system so, the next example, which I'll take a little longer to do, perhaps is Melville's Billy Budd, which is a story of a hanging. As I said a minute ago, the implication of Jesus' remark in, in Matthew's Gospel, not to worry when they accuse you because the Spirit will be in you. The implication is that in the position of the victim, you will have moral authority and you, and you the and the accusers will have to Polish their rhetoric and uh, per- perfect their presentation of their case. You don't have to worry less. You have to worry less and less. They have to worry more and more, because the onus will be on them, and that's what's happening in the Billy Budd case. Uh, you know the story of Billy Budd. He's scandalized, in the way the go- gospel uses that term, by Claggart, the sergeant at arms, and he finally hits Claggart. And he hits him so hard he kills him. And the sentence for doing that, the, the law says, he has to be hanged. He has killed a senior officer. He has to be hanged. Now, the trial, three, three officers are selected to, to adjudicate the matter. And Captain Veer, who is the captain of the ship, sees that these three officers have hesitations about hanging Billy. And let me just read to you how Melville Melville uses the 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 uh, the rolling of the ship as part of his as part of his metaphorical structure throughout *Billy Budd*. So here the captain is walking uh, up across the the uh, the deck of the room where the the hearing is being held, and having to walk uphill and downhill occasionally as the hearing is going on. So so it says turning. He to and fro paced the cabin athwart in the returning ascent to windward climbing the slant deck in the the ship's lee roll without knowing it symbolizing thus in his action a mind resolute to surmount difficulties even if against primitive instincts as strong as the wind and the sea. Now what he's trying to surmount, the difficulties trying to surmount is the empathy for the victim. But notice it is characterized as a primitive instinct. And this is part of, I think, of Melville's confusion. I don't know how canny Melville was here. I suspect it may have been part of Melville's confusion. It's certainly part of the romanticism of the 19th century, that, are, that these empathies are natural. They're not natural. They're born of the biblical revelation. And then it says, Presently he came to stand before the three, After scanning their faces, he stood less as mustering his thoughts for expression than as one inly deliberating how best to put these thoughts to well-meaning men not intellectually mature, men with whom it was necessary to demonstrate certain principles that were axioms to himself. Notice, who has the onus here? Who is having to brush up on his rhetoric? See, the accusatory authority. So he says to them, "You know, I perceive a certain hesitancy in you." <laughs> this is the that hesitancy that Captain Veer perceived in the three judges, is the is the central force in the w- modern Western world. The hesitancy about the about the execution of sacrificial of the sacrificial mandate that has held culture together since the dawn of culture. And so he says. You no doubt have a, there's a clash in you, he says, no doubt a clash between your military duty and your moral scruple. And he says, I'm now going to, uh, to take a stand in this case. He's not supposed to. He's, he's the senior officer. I'm going to take a stand in this case because I see this hesitancy. And he says, I must ask you to overcome these, uh, these impulses you have. To strive against scruple that might tend to innervate decision. Okay. This is exactly why the Tahitian chief was in a rage. You see As far as he was concerned, the sacrificial ritual was generating the decisiveness necessary to fight the neighboring tribe, and Captain Cook and his interpreter were, were jabbering on in such a way as to innervate decision. You see, So he says, Captain Veer says, if you have these scruples, let's get them out on the table and talk about them. He wants to show that these scruples are not, not to be considered seriously. State them, he says. There are these. How can we adjudicate the summary and shameful death of fellow creature innocent before God? He says, I feel that too. It is nature. But there's a, now it becomes a little perverse because it was a 19th century cliché, or maybe an 18th century cliché, that the certain natural instincts had to be governed. It was also a Freudian cliché. So the idea that, well, this is, a na- this is nature, but we're, we're bigger than nature, aren't we? We're not just natural people, are we? We have to suppress that. But you see the perversity of it? It's not nature. The empathy for the victim is not nature. It's part of the biblical revelation. And what he's trying to suppress is precisely that. So he's characterized it. This is the whole name of the game in our world. If you can, if you can determine the nature of the discourse, you can. it can go in your direction, win or lose. The, the key is to determine the terms of the discourse, and then it doesn't matter who wins. So he's got this thing f- figured in terms of nature uh, versus uh, uh, duty. So then the next suggestion was we mitigate the sentence. We find him guilty, but we mitigate the sentence. Veer says we can't do it. Now, why can't we do it? Well, Veer says we can't do it because there'll be no end to it. And here you almost have the history of Western civilization. Western civilization is reforming, 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 every generation trying to include those its, its predecessors had excluded. Every generation trying to do better, not be victimizing, not be as insensitive. It's the nature of Western civilization, and it's and. In some ways it's become a great perversity, but it's at its heart is the most important force in the world. And th- what, I'm, what I'm trying to picture here is a struggle going on in these people and on this ship between the paraclete, which is the, which is the force that, that undermines the accusatory system, and the prince of this world, to speak in Johannine terms, uh, the father of lies and the murderer from the beginning, the system that uses the sacrificial uh, scenario to reconvene solid, human, social solidarity. So it says, Veer announced that the, the execution, and uh, Melville says, the captain's announcement was listened to by the throng of standing sailors in a dumbness like that of a seated congregation of believers in hell listening to the clergyman's announcement of his Calvinistic text. But then it says, at the close, however, a confused murmur went up. It began to wax, to grow louder. All but instantly then at a sign it was pierced and suppressed by the shrill whistles of the boatswain and his mates. And word was given to get back to your duties. Okay, so Billy's hung. The crucifixion is a showdown between the Prince of Peace and the Prince of this world. And Melville has that same showdown in The Hanging of Billy. Here's the moment of hanging. Again, we get the rolling of the ship. The hull, deliberately recovering from the periodic roll to leeward, was just regaining even keel when the last signal, a preconcerted dumb one, was given. The business of sacrifice in human anthropology is the restoration of order of a catharsis which restores order. And so here we have the ship is just gaining even keel. It's coming up from a roll, you see, to lure, but now it's just gaining even keel when Billy drops on the rope, okay? And then this. At the same moment it chanced, and that the ship keeps rolling up, you see. It gains even keel, but then it goes on up, that side of the ship. At the same moment it chanced that the vapory fleece hanging low in the east was shot, this is at dawn, was shot through with a soft glory as of the fleece of the Lamb of God seen in mystical vision. And simultaneously therewith, watched by the wedged mass of upturned faces, Billy ascended. And ascending took the full rose of the dawn. There you have it. There you have it. Now, the silence... Still reading Melville. The silence at the moment of execution and for a moment or two continuing thereafter was gradually disturbed by a sound not easily to be verbally rendered. A, a sound of murmurous indistinctness. It was of dubious significance, says Melville, But still in all, it seemed, as he says, it seemed to indicate some capricious revulsion of thought or feeling such as mobs ashore are liable to. The sacrifice had the opposite effect of what it's supposed to have in anthropology. The anthropological effect of sacrifice is to restore, is to use catharsis to restore order, and this one further eroded it. But guess what? In the same way that, that uh, Captain Cook said, uh, if you did that in England, we'd hang you. These sailors are filled with rebellious spirit, you see. The, they are so outraged by that hanging that they are about, no doubt, to gather themselves together and to do another one or uh, several more. You see what I mean? The revulsion, at, the moral revulsion generated by, sacri- by the, a sacrificial uh, ritual that has failed just leads to more sacrificial activity. So the news from uh, the... But, but you see, as this happens, then it says uh, there's a strategic command. They blew the whistles again, and they calmed things down for the moment. And then we get Melville gives us the news from the Mediterranean, which tells about this, this uh, terrible thing that happened on board the ship. And the news from the Mediterranean, which Melville said was no doubt written in good faith, Uh, says in part, John Claggart, the ship's master at arms, discovering that some sort of plot was incipient among an inferior section of the ship's company and that the ringleader was one William Budd, he, Claggart, in the act of arraigning the man before the captain, was vindictively stabbed in the heart by the suddenly drawn sheath knife of Budd. The deed and the implement employed sufficiently suggest that though mustered into the service under an English name, the assassin was no Englishman. But one of those aliens, adopting English cognomens, whom the present extraordinary necessities of service have caused to be admitted into it into the navy in considerable numbers. In other words, that's the official report. That's the myth. That's the myth. Outliving the myth in terms of its power of conviction is the following little uh, observation at the end of the story: the spar from which the foretopman was suspended was for some few years kept trace of by the Blue Jackets. Their knowledges followed it from ship to dockyard and again from dockyard to ship, still pursuing it even when at last reduced to a mere dockyard boom. To them, a chip of it was as a piece of the cross. Well, it's just a marvelous story of the world we live in. Now, it's perfect in a way. It's too easy. It's too easy because Billy Budd's a... Uh, he's a simple figure, but he's he's an innocent sort of a guy, you know? and we don't necess- we rarely choose innocent victims anymore. We've, we we know better than that. We choose people that are certifiably morally flawed, or you know, So we don't do anything quite as crude as this anymore. But it still shows the struggle that goes on with innocent among us between the Paraclete and the and the and the ancient system of sacrifice. Melville here explores the struggle between the empathy for the accused and the camaraderie born of accusation. And he does so in an earnest and straightforward way. I spoke earlier in an earlier session about Satan casting out Satan. There's There's a perverse analog to that here, and that is the paraclete casting out the paraclete. And that's the world we live in today. The spurning of the victimizing system which selects only victimizers as its victims or in some other way manipulates the empathies born of the paraclete's influence on us in order to uh, continue uh, the the system in some way or just continue to operate under its purview. So I wanted to offer two little things very quickly, Uh, one from my favorite straw man these days, I guess you could say scapegoat is uh, Rousseau. He, he i'm just about to argue that he that's the precisely the role he was uh, sought out so i'm not uh, i'm not doing him any ju- injustice uh, but uh, these are stories about the mo- a more labyrinthine development in- in terms of the revelation of the paraclete. I should say that I owe my uh work on Rousseau to the work of uh, Tobin Siebers, who's at the University of Michigan, who's in recent papers over the last few years has done some really interesting work on Rousseau, so I owe a debt to him. Rousseau discovered, I, I guess you could say it was Rousseau's great discovery, that it was only by standing in the midst of an accusing crowd that he was able to invoke his greatest moral authority, you see that, how that is, the, that's born of the Paraclete's work in the world? And he seemed to sense, and you know, the, Rousseau's Confessions just catalog all these moral failures of his. I mean, it catalogs a lot of other things too, very flattering. But there are plenty of things in there that are confessions in the way we used to, we think of confession. He seemed to sense that if his moral failures were necessary and public notice of them, was necessary for setting this situation in motion, which would put him at the center of an accusing mob, then it was a small small price to pay to supply them with all these accusations that they wanted. So he joined in the accusation in order to enjoy more fully the moral swagger of being the accused. One wonders, in our time, the genre of confessions, confessing our our uh, transgressions is quite fashionable. I mean, it's everywhere. So it's all the... the uh, there's. It's it's in the tonality of our society. Here's my last little, more or less contemporary thing. This is from Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky's idiot is as Prince Mishkin. He's this simple-minded but holy and Christ-like sort of figure. He's like Billy Budd in many ways. He's like Billy Budd. He has pity on uh, Natasha Philipovna, a woman of easy virtue, uh, who, who announces her, her sordid past. And uh, he announces, she announces her sordid past to a uh, Prince Mishkin, who won't, ha- won't hear anything of it. He thinks she shouldn't talk that way, He's, she's a lovely person. And she argues with him. But when she announces it to somebody else who believes her, she argues with them too. Somebody else says, yeah, you're pretty bad, I guess. Wait a minute, she takes offense. <laughs> so there's a critic who, who in many ways is a very subtle critic in many ways, but in other ways he, he, uh, he goes off the chart, uh, a man named Bakhtin. And Bakhtin has a piece on this, and here's what he says. I think it's interesting. Considering herself guilty, a fallen woman she simultaneously assumes that the other person, precisely as other, is obliged to vindicate her and cannot consider her guilty. In other words, she knows she is living in a world under the influence of the paraclete. She knows that if she announces that she's the accused by accusing herself, that she will have defenders. Because the the imperative... To defend the accused is so much with us. So she's safe to announce it. An anticipated and obligatory vindication by the other merges with self-condemnation. This is one of those little perversities in our society, in our world today, which is, which is born of this revelation that the paraclete is bringing to us. Our, the human penchant for, for funny business is unlimited. Our, our skills, our facility at moving in and out and through this revelation without being transformed by it, our, our facility is truly astounding. The purpose of referring to the Cook story in Tahiti, the Billy Budd story, uh, the, um, the Rousseau ploy, and uh, this figure in Dostoevsky, was to show that it's really the paraclete that's at work in our world. And if you don't believe it, pick up tomorrow's paper and see how it deconstructs the sacrificial ruse and what happens to societies who try to live after the sacrificial ruse has been deconstructed without a, a conversion experience. They fall into chaos. Because the only alternative to the sacrificial system in terms of civility and sanity is conversion. And that's the other thing that the farewell discourses underscore emphatically. Jesus says in chapter 17, I am in the world no longer. He's praying to God on behalf of his disciples and he says i am in the world no longer now this is when he's in the flesh so when he says i'm in the world no longer what's he mean he's not talking about the earth he's not talking about flesh he's talking about being in that ordered cosmos which is the the world of conventional culture the mythologized world of conventional culture he says i'm in it i am in it no longer And then he says, I passed your word, he's speaking to God, I passed your word on to to them, the disciples. And as a result, the world hates them because they belong to the world no more. They belong to the world no more than I belong to the world. And I'm not asking you to remove them from the world, but to protect them from the evil one. From the accuser, they do not belong to the world any more than I belong to the world. They are still in it, he says, but they don't belong to it this is the This is the Johannine formula for where we are we're it's like paul's in it, but not of it we're in it, but we do not belong to it and I think this is where the anthropological reading leads directly into the Spiritual uh, reading, uh, spiritual reading. The Johannine Jesus says, "I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. You are the branches. If I'm no longer at home in the world, in the culture world, if I no longer can derive my sense of social significance, psychological grounding, all the rest of it, from my social, uh, you know, the social consensus, where do I get it?" And I think this is how we have to read these other statements in here. I am the vine; my Father is the vine dresser; you are the branches. This is this is the new world you belong to. Christ uh, replaces the world as a source of of self substantiation. The world used to be your source of self substantiation. And he says, I'm robbing it of its power to substantiate either itself or you. Slowly but surely, it will lose its power to substantiate itself and to substantiate those people that participate in it. If you want self-substantiation, you have to go to the source. The only source of self-substantiation is God. There's no way to get to God directly. You go through a mediator. I will be the mediator. You can now ground yourself in me. You live in me, and I will live in you. This is, and I think this sounds so esoteric and so mystical in a way, I live in you, you live in me, but I think it's absolutely practical. It's absolutely practical, and it has to be seen in terms of this juxtaposition with the collapse of the world's ability to substantiate itself and its participant, the conventional social world's ability to substantiate itself. And he says, make your home... You have to have a home. You have to be at home somewhere. You don't belong to the world anymore. Make your home in me, and I will make my home in you. Or the other way, abide in me, and I will abide in you. And then you will have some grounding. And I want to start with the little parable that is in Melville's Moby Dick, at the beginning of Melville's Moby Dick, or close to the beginning. Because I think it's a parable of the church and one in which the passion story symbolically takes uh, center stage. And so I want to look at that before we turn to the passion story itself. And what I'm talking about is this little scene in the Spouter Inn when uh, Ishmael... uh, and Quiquet go there they meet there in the, spout, uh, the spouter inn. Uh, but when Ishmael goes into the spouter inn, he enters to, in a uh, entryway, and he describes the entryway in the room just uh, across from the entryway, and he and he describes a kind of triptych, which is, I think, uh, a parable of Christian revelation. That this spouter in might be a metaphor for the church in some way is, uh, is implied in part by the name of the owner. The owner's name is Peter Coffin, uh, Peter being the representative of the church and uh, Coffin be, being this curious notion that, uh, or implying some idea that, uh, uh, that this involves a death, some kind of a death. So here's what happens. Ishmael walks in. And there are two walls of this entryway and then a public room, or really a pub, just beyond the two walls. And here's what he describes. On one side of the entryway hung a very large oil painting, so thoroughly besmoked and in every way defaced, that in the unequal cross lights by which you viewed it, it was only by diligent study and a series of systematic visits to it and careful inquiry of its neighbors, that you could in any way arrive at an understanding of its purpose. So there's this inscrutable, dark, besmoked painting. And, and uh, Ishmael says uh, it was only by diligent study in a series of systematic visits that its meaning could be ferreted out. Uh, if this is the mystery, as I think it is, at the heart of the passion story uh, or at the heart of the Christian tradition itself, then these periodic visits... Uh, the, the, the once-a-week ones to the, to the church on Sunday represent a, a version of these periodic visits where we continue to ponder this thing. Uh, Ishmael, in order to get a better view of this, throws open a little window, quote, a little window toward the back of the entry. So he, he performs a kind of work of the Spirit uh, on this dark painting. The painting's dark enough. But the atmosphere inside this metaphor of a church is uh, is too, too dark. And so Ishmael goes over and throws a window open to let a little light come in on this thing before he begins the pondering uh, of the meaning of the painting. And like the Bible itself, the painting <clears throat> uh, is, as uh, Ishmael says, it's as though the artist, quote, had endeavored to delineate chaos bewitched. It couldn't, he just made no sense out of it, except that he understood that in the center of that painting was the most uh, curious and inscrutable uh, object, quote, a portentous black mass of something, uh, about which he said there was a sort of indefinite, half-attained, unimaginable solemnity so that it was, uh, it was impossible to decipher, but at the same time it had a solemnity to it. Um, so he, he, he understood that if he could figure out what that thing in the middle was, he could understand the painting and perhaps things even outside the painting. That once found out, Ishmael says, all the rest would be plain. So he pondered and he asked <clears throat> a number of, quote, aged persons uh, in the Spouter Inn, to offer their opinion as to what that painting was about. And in the course of, uh, as a result of this investigation, he discovered what it was. A Cape Horner, a, a ship, in a hurricane, which he describes as follows, quote, the half-founded ship weltering there with its three dismantled masts alone visible and an exasperated whale proposing to spring clean over the craft is in the enormous act of impaling himself upon the three mastheads. Well, you have here a silhouette of the uh, of of the ship that is very much like the silhouette of the uh, crucifixion scene in the passion story. The three crosses, the three mastheads would be would would look with their sails down would look like the three crosses, and on that is. This whale, which for Melville in this story is really the inscrutable deity, is being impaled on these mastheads. That's still quite inscrutable. So Ishmael turns around and looks at the other wall. And here's what he sees on the other wall. The opposite wall of this entryway was hung all over with a heathenish array of monstrous clubs and spears. Some were thickly set with glittering teeth resembling ivory saws. Others were tufted with knots of human hair, and one was sickle-shaped with a vast handle sweeping round like a segment made in the new-mown grass by a long-armed mower. You shuddered as you gazed and wondered what monstrous cannibal and savage could ever have gone a death-harvesting with such a hacking, horrifying implement. So on the wall opposite this... Uh, this, this crucifixion scene would be the crucifixion rendered in the idiom of the whaling industry of New Bedford, you see, made into a contemporary image. And on the opposite wall is this catalog of human violence. It's a, it's a little museum of human violence. And what we're asked to ponder without the author saying so, what the relationship between these two walls might be. But there is an option for those who don't want to ponder that, which was the the little saloon right straight ahead. So that was a third alternative, or at least it seemed like a third alternative. And Ishmael says this about the saloon: "Within are shabby shelves ranged round with old decanters, bottles, flask, and in these jaws of swift destruction." Oh, by the way, the, to get into the to the saloon, you had to walk through the huge uh, jawbone of a whale. So. You walk into it like that, and he says, "In these jaws of swift destruction, like another cursed Jonah, parentheses by which name indeed they called him, the the man who ran the pub, bristles a little old withered man who, for their money, dearly sells the sailors' deliriums and death." So you could, if you didn't want to ponder the relationship between these two walls and entryway, you could, you could go and uh, 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 for a, for a price uh, have. Have uh, have some more delusion. Well, I I, I always think about that one that triptych because I because it's, it reminds me of the in the ongoing effort to understand how we can say that we have been saved by a hanged man that the crucifixion was salvific that it redeemed us or in our perhaps to translate into our language, it emancipated us. It freed us from the grip of a delusion that was keeping us from being fully human and fully alive. How could we say that? How could something like a very grim public execution do that? The world will be pondering that question for a long, long, long time to come. I don't propose to have the final answer to it, but each generation ought to make an effort So, this week as I thought about, well, how do we approach the passion story, I I realized that the passion story, as we have them in the Gospels, are all written in the light of the resurrection. The real sequence of events is the resurrection comes first and the passion story comes second. In the first instance, the crucifixion was simply this catastrophe. And if they were asked to tell the story of the crucifixion at that moment, they would probably, the, the people who finally passed the story on to us, would probably have told a quite different story. The crucifixion, by the way, crucifixion, the, the, the punishment of crucifixion was reserved for subhumans. For slaves or people who had, who had committed such heinous crimes that only a crucifixion would match the horror of their acts. I mean, it was there were there were lots of ways of punishing people or even killing people. Crucifixion was the worst, the most despicable, uh, the most, uh, uh, the most. Uh, it implied the most abject kind of judgment on the person being crucified and it was a terrible torturous way to die and paul was right it was a scandal and a uh and an absurdity to people who had, who uh, were first hearing christian message to when they found out that uh, this man that the christians were talking about had been actually crucified so in the first instance it was just a catastrophe And then it became something else, and it became that because of the experience of the resurrection. So the experience of the resurrection, it's only in light of the resurrection that the stories of the crucifixion as we have them could could have come to us. So we're going to talk about the resurrection next week, but for just a minute we have to say, well, what is the resurrection? I don't know what the resurrection is. I mean, it's bigger than words, no doubt. But in part, the resurrection was coming to understand that this thing which seemed like a catastrophe and an utterly meaningless thing, which was the crucifixion, was something altogether different. It was not the meaningless end of Jesus' mission, but it was the meaningful fulfillment of it. That his death was meaningful the resurrection whatever else it might have been can uh, uh, produce this insight that his death was meaningful the very thing which seemed to be the most meaningless thing and in first corinthians you have in paul and first corinthians you you have a little creed which is probably the first creed at least the first written form of the creed some features of this creed scholars feel go back into the 40s and maybe even to the 30s. So very it's the oldest uh, creedal formulation we have. And he says, I'm passing on to you what was passed on to me, namely that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised to life on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared first to Cephas, that's Peter, second to the Twelve, next he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to the Apostle, and last of all, he appeared to me too. It was as though I was born when no one expected it. He had persecuted the Christian. Now these are resurrection appearances, and Paul says he appeared to me, namely on the road to Damascus. So that's a resurrection experience. In other words, as Paul is describing it, the resurrection experience is synonymous with conversion. It's synonymous with coming to faith. It's the realization that the crucif that the that Jesus is. Uh, ministry was was fulfilled in his death, and not destroyed by it. Similarly, in Luke, the, the road to Emmaus story in Luke, which is probably one of the most amazing resurrection appearance story. In that story, two disciples dejectedly walking back from Jerusalem to Emmaus, they're joined by Jesus. They don't recognize him, and they're talking in very solemn. Uh, in somber terms about this catastrophe that they just witnessed. And Jesus says, uh, well, what was it? And they they said, well, you must be the only person who doesn't know what it was. There was this Jesus. We thought he was the Messiah. We had great hopes he was going to restore Israel. uh, And he was arrested and crucified, and everything is, you know, finished. And then it says, and then Jesus, uh, let me quote the passage. And then he said to them, you foolish men so slow to believe the full message of the prophets was it not ordained that the Christ should suffer and so enter into his glory then starting with Moses and going through all the prophets he explained to them the passages throughout the scriptures that were about himself and as he did this their heart burned their hearts burned with fervor and they came to Emmaus he stayed broke bread with them and in the breaking of the bread they recognized him as soon as they recognized him he disappeared what Luke has done is Luke has described a story, a resurrection story, which is a process. It's a process of pondering the crucifixion in light of the scriptures, in light of Moses and the prophets, and slowly coming to realize that he is alive. That the death was not the end of his mission, but the entry into a new phase of it. And that he he was still with them. So it's a way it's, it's Luke's way of showing that the resurrection experiences, uh, perhaps what most of the resurrection experiences consisted of, namely, something more gradual than just an immediate flash of realization. Okay, I say that because I mean I went I mentioned the resur- resurrection experience because it's in light of that. The evangelists then go back to tell the story of the crucifixion. Now they can tell the story of the crucifixion. Uh, what, they, what, what the resurrection tells them is that the crucifixion was at the heart of the meaning of Jesus' life. So it was not the destroyer of the meaning of his life. It was the full revelation of the meaning of his life. So instead of having to go to the passion story and apologize for it to the world, the evangelist could go to it and see that therein lies the full revelation. And then they could tell the story. Now, as an evangelist or as an early Christian believer or early Christian community, the challenge would be to understand that in the same way that Ishmael stands in front of this dark uh, painting, besmoked, tries to open a window on it, look at it, and say, how could that be? What is that? How does that relate to the other wall? Or how does this save us from something? Or how could this be the essence of his revelation? How could something like that be the essence of his revelation? And so we have the synoptic and John's version of the Passion story, and we're going to look at John's version of it uh, today and I've slightly rearranged the, the material in John because I want to save um, the story of Peter's participation uh, in the passion story till the end. The passion story in John's eight, uh, chapter eighteen and nineteen. I'll just read this first passage and we'll comment on it. it says after he had said this, namely the farewell discourses. Uh, after Jesus had said all this he left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley and there was a garden there and he went into it with his disciples. Judas the traitor knew the place well since Jesus had often met his disciples there. He brought a cohort to this place together with a detachment of guards sent by the chief priests and Pharisees. Now, what I want to bring out in in this story is how the evangelist is now describing the arrest and the passion in Structural terms, I say structural terms, let's say, if we see simply the way the narrative furniture, so to speak, is set up, we begin to get the sense of what, uh, we begin to understand what it is about the passion story that is redemptive. And so, just to pay attention to the way it's structured, Judas shows up, with a a cohort now a cohort was a Roman military unit consisting of 600 men well that's obviously an exaggeration doesn't matter the point is he shows up with a Roman military contingent and the temple police the security forces from the from the temple sent by the chief priests and the Pharisees notice these are two opposing forces the Jews hate the Romans the Romans have mild contempt for the Jews they are, they're historical enemies. Now, in Luke's gospel, you have this thing where Herod, who's the, who's the Jewish uh, ethnarch or tetrarch, uh, and Pilate, who's the Roman leader, become friends after the death of Jesus. That They, they are reconciled by his, his crucifixion. In John, you have the same thing, only it's in this narrative here. So one of the functions of the scapegoating mechanism is that it creates camaraderie among the scapegoaters. That is to say, people who, have, who might otherwise be directing their contempt and anger at each other find an alternative they direct, they, on whom they can both uh, turn their, their uh, rancor and, and violence And they're reconciled. So you already, at the very beginning of this story, you already have that process taking place, a cooperation between these two historical enemies. And then it says they showed up with lanterns, torches, and weapons. In this gospel, Jesus is the light of the world, and here come these little forces uh, with their little tools for illuminating uh, and controlling the world, lanterns, torches, and weapons. And standing there in the little glare of the light put out by these things, you know, uh, trying to arrest, and, and in English that's a nice a reminder, say to arrest the revelation or the first paraclete. But I think lanterns, torches, and weapons is a marvelous uh, insight, a pathetic uh, little metaphor for how the, the, the tools that the world uses to try to find its way out of its own darkness. And Jesus steps forward. Jesus in John's Gospel is very regal throughout the Passion. He steps forward and he says, Whom do you seek? And there's a lot of irony in this. You know, his first question in this Gospel was, uh, What do you want? And they said, Where do you abide? Setting in motion this whole question of abiding. And now he says, Whom do you seek? Jesus the Nazarene, they say. Uh, the irony is that they have a very funny way of seeking him. Uh, the, the whole world will eventually seek him, you know but it's in what way will they seek him? and he says, "I am he, but "I am he is ego and me," which is the Greek version of what Moses, what uh, Yahweh said in the burning bush it 's the Greek translation of "I am who am." It can be simply "I am he," implied the, the pronoun implied no, no theological implication or it can be, with all the theological implications in play. And clearly the theological implications are in play because when he says that, when he said that, it says uh, they all fell down, they all moved back and fell down to the ground. So clearly he's, he's revealing them. He reveals himself. Now he has said, I am, earlier in this gospel. But I think it's important that this revelation of his, of his divine status occurs at precisely the moment that he is surrounded by the accusing mob. God has chosen, according to the the Christian revelation, God has chosen to reveal himself in the role of the scapegoat. Uh, And you could say, you know those jokes about somebody says... uh, there's some drunks looking for his keys around at the base of the, uh, at the street light, you know. And somebody says, what are you doing? He said, I'm looking for my keys. He said, well, where'd you, where'd you drop them? He said, well, I dropped them over there in the bushes someplace. <laughs> well, why don't you go look? He said, there's no light over there. Uh, <laughs> um, why would God reveal himself at, at, as the scapegoat? Because it is in the scapegoating ritual or the scapegoating scenario that we turn the lights out it's it's the source of all human delusion and if there's going to be a revelation that will begin to turn the lights back on it has to be right there it has to be at the same place so at that moment that he's surrounded by his accusers and he realizes John says uh, he knew everything that was about to happen to him knowing that now that now his hour has come you know the whole in this Gospel, this whole thing about the the hour. My hour has not yet arrived, and so on. Finally, the hour comes, and he says, "I am." Now the full revelation can take place because he's he's in this structurally. He's standing exactly where the revelation can take place. I'll skip a few passages. Go back to him later. the The main scene in the passion takes place. The main drama is a is a is a set piece it's a it's a almost a a a play within the play it's a seven scene play that takes place at the at the Roman Praetorium where the the tension is between Jesus and Pilate and the crowd and as John did with the man born blind in chapter nine so here he has a set a a, a structured like a little play with seven scenes and the scenes are uh differentiated by being inside or outside the praetorium. The reason they have to be inside and outside is that the Jews show up ready to condemn and execute Jesus, but they have to get Roman a- approval to do so because the law doesn't allow them to execute. But it is preparation day for Passover. It's Friday. Passover starts at sundown. Uh, to, in order to participate in the Passover uh, liturgies and rituals, they have to be undefiled. And to enter into a pagan's house uh, would be to defile themselves. And therefore, they would not be able to participate in the Passover liturgy. So they stay outside. And Pilate goes in and talks to Jesus. He comes out and talks to the crowd. and He goes in to talk to Jesus and so on and finally brings Jesus out at the very end. But it, uh, again, the irony is they come ready to sacrifice the prophet or the Messiah but at the same time, completely scrupulous about the about the religious rules and regulations. Now, notice, watch the structure of this thing. They say, uh, uh, Pilate says to them, uh, "What charge do you bring against him?" And they say, "If he were not an evildoer, we would not be handing him over to you." That's the answer to the what charge is it. In other words, their their answer is it goes without saying. What what he did wrong goes without saying. Now, when some whenever somebody says it goes without saying, that's a way of indicating that the that the hostility is a mimetic phenomenon. It's generated. It's a social phenomenon and not a juridical one. They haven't decided that he did the wrong thing by by talking about well, what did he do and what, was it good or bad or whatever. They have decided because they've gotten caught up in something. And when, we come to, when we're ready to condemn somebody because we all know, I mean, who, it's clear, right? Nobody, nobody even has to say it anymore. We all know for sure that this is the person that must be expelled or executed. Well, that's exactly it. It goes without saying, they say. In the earlier scene, when Jesus is before the, the, uh, the high priest at, at the house of Annas, uh, they, they say to him, what did you teach? And he says, well, ask those who heard me what I taught. I didn't do anything in secret. Just ask them what I taught. Well, in a way he's saying, to the, in the way John is saying to his community, look, it's, we don't have to go back and constantly be figuring out what the verbatim words of Jesus were, You know, like modern biblical scholars are trying to discover the historical Jesus. It's ridiculous. John knows already at the end of the first century that's a, that's a dead end. You don't find out Jesus' message by going back and and finding some scroll with his verbatim. You find it out by hearing those who have had who have had his message come alive in them. So Jesus said, just ask those who've heard me. I'm not we're not into verbatim transcripts here. Just ask those who've heard me. But also he's saying, in John's Gospel it doesn't matter, Jesus didn't come to teach. In John's Gospel he didn't come to teach. He came to manifest himself. This is this is a unique feature of John's gospel. It's true to a much, much less extent than some of the other Gospels. So it's not a question of what he taught. In a way, it's a complete, completely ridiculous question. What did you teach? And he says, oh, well, I can't remember. You know? Ask those who... I mean, that's not quite true, you know, but it's not important. It's not central. Likewise, Pilate says, what have you done? It's not the question. The question is, who are you? In this Gospel, the question is, who are you? Not, what have you done? So when he says, what have you done? Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not entirely responsive, you know. What have you done? My kingdom is not of this world. What have you done? I've done nothing. You know, in, uh, Psalm, in uh, Psalm 22, Psalm 39, there's a number of psalms where, the, where the, it's, they accuse me for no reason. We talked about that last week, I think. They accuse me for no reason. What have you done? I've done nothing. All I've done is I've lived my life in obedience to something that, that nobody else can see. And so everybody thinks I'm being disobedient. And so I've come to manifest what it is that I'm obedient to. Because it's the truth and this other thing everybody's being obedient to is not. It's the world. It's the world lost in its little delusions of how to keep itself ordered. So, what have you done? My kingdom is not of this world. I love it. (laughs) I mean, it happens over and over in the Gospel, you know, but when none of these questions are answered at the level they're at. And, but, but the accusation is, is you see, the, by the way, the, the Jewish authorities know that it's not going to do them any good to go, go and tell Pilate that he's a blasphemer, you know, that he's broken some, one, of the, one of the religious taboos. That's not going to cut it with the political authority. So well, you have to say something. They say, well, look, he claims to be king. And we know what Caesar does to people who claim to be king. Right? Well, here's one of them. So, go to, they say. And so Pilate gets interested in this question of, are you a king? And Jesus says, "Well, is, do you, is that are you asking, or are you, do you really want to know, or do you, are you just is this a charade?" And and uh, so he fi- finally says, "Okay, yeah, I'm a king. I was born for this," and he redefines what it means to be a king. I was born for this. I came into the world in order to bear witness to the truth. Truth in Greek, as we said, is aletheia, which means to stop forgetting. I've I was. I came into the world in order to bear witness to the truth, in order to get the world to stop forgetting. What does the world forget? What is it that we forget? What is it we misrecognize? Well, and, well, the, the answer lies in the, the second question. If Jesus is going, to, is going to bear witness to the truth by being hung on a cross, what is the, truth that, what is the thing that we are forgetting? And I think it is our participation in this, our dependence on this kind of scenario. So he says, I've uh, come into the world to bear witness to the truth, and all who are on the side of truth hear my voice. And Pilate says, truth? What is truth? And there are an infinite number of ways probably to portray that or to inflect that statement. But I think it's a tremendously important statement. There, there, the, in that statement by Pilate, the whole philosophical tradition declares its bankruptcy. Pilate is, a, as I said, a, a product of the, of the Greco-Roman philosophical tradition. He's a political manipulator, no doubt, but in terms of his education, truth would have been the central premise in his education. You see, a part of the philosoph- I mean, It's so central the philosophical tradition, the search for truth, truth is this, truth is that, what is true? It's a big deal in the political the philosophical tradition. And standing there with Jesus in front of him, suddenly the whole, all the, you know, the, all the air is let out of it. What is truth? And to my mind, it's the it's the first declaration of the bankruptcy of the, of the philosophical tradition, which, as you may know, is. Now, in our day, loudly declaring its bankruptcy, proudly declaring its bank- bankruptcy in some quarters, um, but uh, the author of the Gospel John beat, it, beat the moderns to the punch by 1,900 years. So, I want to talk a little bit about the truth here for a second. Pilate thinks the truth is something you think. Here's something Kierkegaard said. It's, it's a very interesting understanding of truth I think here's what Kierkegaard said truth is a power but one can see that only in rare instances because truth is suffering and it must be defeated as long as it is true when it has become victorious others will join it why? Kierkegaard says, why? Because it is truth? No. If it were for that reason, they would have joined it when it was suffering. Therefore, they do not join it because it has power. They join it after it has become a power because others have joined it. Now, this is very complicated, but I think it's one of the most amazing insights of Kierkegaard. Truth has to be defeated and cast out in order to be true. It is in being cast out that it reveals the truth. And as soon as we are attracted to that truth and join it, and we become part of a social movement toward an affirmation of it, it is no longer being cast out. Is being It's now being celebrated, a ticker tape parade, and it's fine, it's, it's whatever it is. It becomes a kind of power in the world. But it's not the truth that it was when it was being cast out. When it was being cast out, it was a, it was a, it was a powerful, revolutionary truth. But when we recognize that truth and all move towards it and support it and uh, claim it as our own, it begins to become another kind of truth, a kind of historical truth, but not the way it was before. So, what is this truth that is only really true as, as it's being cast out? And I think it's the truth, the revelation about the process of casting out, and what and how central that process is in in the creation of conventional culture and conventional psychological states of consciousness. So, Gerard, just to compare this with Gerard's, but uh, you know. We talked a few weeks ago about the woman caught in adultery. And I shared with you uh, Renee's, I think, brilliant insight into that story, which is the first person who walked away and chose not to stone her uh, did so because of the power of Jesus' challenge, Let he, he who has no sin cast the first stone. Uh, the second person who walked away walked away because of the power of Jesus' challenge, plus the fact that he he just had somebody as a model for walking away. He saw somebody else walking away. The third person saw two people walking away. The fourth person saw three, and so on and so forth. So that as you move down the line, more and more of this walking away is part of the same process that got him there in the first place, namely following the crowd. So that it's better to walk away from a stoning than to walk towards one, but the, the fact that one is following the social uh, current is an important part of it. So I think it's a, of a piece with what Kierkegaard is saying here. It, the real revelation occurred when the truth is being expelled. I, what The point I want to make is when Peter hears the cock crow, he discovers the truth. And it's not a concept. It's a revelation. And he could have only discovered that truth under those circumstances. In the same way that Paul could only have under uh, uh, could only discover that truth under the circumstance he discovered it, namely persecuting, on his way to do some more persecuting, and suddenly being caught up in realizing what he's doing. That is to say, in the act of expulsion, or in Peter's case, in the act of, of acquiescing in the expulsion or, beca- or joining the side of the expellers, it's waking up from that. That's the truth. And it's not a concept, it's a reality. It's a recognition of an incredible reality and a participation in reality. And that's the revelation, the true true revelation. And then if it's turned into uh, some formulation that we try to... And we'll have to be turned into a formulation so we can try to act accordingly and arrange our social and psychological lives in a different way and so on. But it loses that power as truth. the mo- The second we move away from the experience of the cock crowing or the experience of the road to Damascus where the voice says, why are you persecuting me? That's the truth. And I think that's the key to Christian conversion is that truth at that moment. Kierkegaard says it's only really the truth as it's being defeated as truth, as being rejected. Juarez says the same thing in Things Hidden where he says the logos of love puts up no resistance It always allows itself to be expelled by the logos of violence. And I think that's the truth that's revealed. That's why Jesus can say, I've come to bear witness to the truth. As I'm standing right here, he's not saying, oh, well, back when I was in Galilee and we were having those great crowds, I was witnessing the truth. No, he's saying to Pilate, right here, right now, buddy, right in front of you with your finger pointed toward me, I'm revealing the truth. And Pilate, how could that be the truth? What are you talking about? Say something philosophical, will you? Well then we have the scene of Pilate offering the crowd a, a sop, you know, trying to trying to avoid the execution of Jesus and saying, "Well, look, we've got this uh, custom. We turn one convict loose this time of the year because of the f- Jewish festival and we have Barabbas who's a who's a certified evil doer, you know, uh, some kind of insurrectionist or renegade or uh, something like that." And they say, no, uh, don't turn Jesus loose. Give us Barabbas. It's very interesting, as you may know. The word Barabbas means Barabbas, which means the son of the father. And some early uh, traditions had his first name as Jesus. So his name was Jesus Barabbas. And Jesus is the son of his father. Jesus of Nazareth is the son of his father, capital F father. So you really have here Jesus Barabbas versus Jesus Barabbas. Who do you want? Which one do you want? Uh, now, so you want the one, it turns out, they want the one who is the son of the father in the sense that, you know, Nietzsche has this idea of the eternal return. Uh, that This stuff just keeps recycling back. All the sacrificial stuff keeps recycling back and the ritual repeats and the myth repeats. Uh, and Barabbas represents that. He's a zealot who, who, whose uh, uh, commitment is to avenge the wrongs of the past by co- by committing acts that are indistinguishable, indistinguishable from them in the future. So he thinks he is stepping into the future by simply replicating it. He's one of the boys. He's son of the father. So you get this eternal return. He's the son of the father who's the son of the father who's the son of the father. Just keep going round and round and round and round. And that's the one the crowd wants. That's the one who can fire their zeal and fill them with enthusiasm and convince them that they're really going to change things. And this other one who is outside of that cycle who is the son of the father who is the god of love they don't want it, it would upset the uh, the cycle the central scene, not, not in meaning, but in, just in structure, the middle scene of the seven scenes, is when Jesus is, is scourged and uh, dressed in a robe, you know, a royal robe and a crown of thorns, and, and uh, mocked and spat upon, hail, King of the Jews, a kind of mockery. And of course, the crowd is saying something true, but they don't realize it. From a structural point of view, it's interesting as well, because if you remember, we talked earlier, I think we did, about how anthropologically the king is the scapegoat victim with an extended sentence. At the beginning of human uh, culture, the scapegoat victim is in fact the sacred figure, because the victimization or the, or the hovering threat of the imminent victimization endows the victim with a kind of numinosity which can be manipulated and turned into political power or religious power. And so you get the victim whose sentence is not carried out immediately begins to accrue to himself social prestige, which at some point he can actually manipulate in order to transfer the victimization to somebody else and stay in power as the, as the, uh, as the holy one or the feared one or the revered one or the powerful one. So the, the victim and the king are the same person. And here you have, right in the middle of the passion story, a revelation of that. So again, structurally, it's unbelievable. Pilate comes back out with Jesus, and he says, "Eche Homo, here's the man. And everybody says, crucify him. Pilate is, begin to, is beginning to get shaken by this thing. He's losing control. Suddenly, they have the power, and he doesn't. And he realizes, he begins to realize it. He says to So he goes back to speak with Jesus inside. He says to him, uh, where do you come from? And Jesus doesn't answer him. He, he says, don't you know I have the power to crucify you? And Jesus says, you wouldn't have the power to crucify me if it were not given to you from elsewhere. But then he says, the one who handed me over to you has, has the greater guilt, meaning the Jewish uh, authority. Now, this is where I want to reemphasize this point that I made earlier. By giving priority to the role of religion in the Passion over the role of politics, the evangelist has simply recognized the anthropological centrality of religion. Now, the fact that it was a Jewish religion as opposed to any other is not without significance because the Jews are the people of the revelation. Earlier this week I said if we retran I'm not interested in retranslating the gospel, even for so lofty a goal as to eliminate its sexism. I, for here, for instance, I would not change the, the references to the Jews. But were I to... I mean, if somebody said, well, let's do it anyway. I said, okay, well, if we're going to do that, instead of using the word Jews, let's use the word religionist. And it could be religionist of any tradition, certainly including the Christian tradition. On the other hand, it's important that it was the Jews in the sense that they and we have the revelation. That is to say, they had a, they had a, much, more, uh, a much less obvious version of it than we have because they, their version of it came before the crucifixion. But those of us who have the revelation, who continue to participate in these sacrificial rituals, are far more culpable than people who don't. So there is something here, some some uh, something about it was even those who in a sense had the scriptures uh, that were capable of telling them, providing the revelation to them to some extent. Even they participated in this thing. And, of course, we would have to say that about all up and down through Christian history in a much more obvious way.